Thanks for picking up the Bible Study Magazine podcast. One of the hottest topics in Bible study is Bible translation. Which English Bible translation is the best? Which one should I pick? I think those are the wrong questions. Don't pick one. Pick all the good ones. That's what I say. But I think I need to earn that conclusion. A lot of people disagree. I'm going to try to earn it by an interview with English Standard Version translator and respected, faithful, godly biblical scholar Vern Poitras. And I'm going to try to earn it further with a roundtable conversation afterwards with two of my nerdiest linguistics and Bible translation friends here at Faith Life, Doug Mangum and Mike Aubrey. I think my guests will have a lot of wisdom to offer you as you work to achieve or promote biblical literacy. If you are doing either one of these things, English Bible translation is going to play a huge role. It will help you to have some understanding of the details. The Bible Study Magazine podcast is brought to you by Bible Study Magazine delivering tools and methods for Bible study from respected scholars and church leaders. Right now, start a free trial. Get six months of fresh insights on achieving greater Bible literacy. Visit BibleStudyMagazine.com slash trial today. Welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I have on with me someone whom I really respect as a Christian brother and as a senior scholar in the Evangelical New Testament and all kinds of academic fields world, Vern Poitras. Dr. Poitras, could you tell us where do you teach and how long have you taught there? Uh, I teach New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and this is beginning of my 44th year. Wow. That means that you have been teaching, let's just say this, longer than I have been alive. And I happen to run your website, and I want to recommend to everyone that they check out frame-poithris.org. Dr. Poithris has taken it as a mission to make certain that as much of his work as is possible is made available freely for the body of Christ. And I just want to say thank you for that, Dr. Poitras. I want to talk to you in the same vein as the rest of the season of this podcast on biblical literacy and, and about one topic in particular, about Bible translation. I've seen a lot of disagreement about this issue online, and I myself have written about the tendency some people have to insist that the King James Version is the only Bible anyone should use. So I want to kind of get back to brass tacks. Where does the Bible say we should have Bible translations? Well, the number one place, I think, is the Great Commission, uh, because it's not only that the disciples are sent to proclaim the gospel, but Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, those commandments are there in the gospel of Matthew uh, leading up to that great commission in Matthew 28. So it's plain that it has to be taught what Jesus said. <laughs> And the same goes in Luke 24. He commissions them to be witnesses. And in Acts 1, they're to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and in the end of the earth. And that, that goes together with the Old Testament uh, prophecies that salvation would come to the nations, and not only salvation, but a knowledge of God and of his word. Uh, for instance, in Micah chapter 4, 
And how is that knowledge going to get to the nations without going into their own languages so that they can understand it? So there's no commandment that directly says translate the Bible, but it's implied in a whole host of places. And it's interesting that the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament using predominantly the Septuagint translation. It was already been done by Jews before the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, and it's in use in the New Testament. So that's kind of an indirect confirmation that Bible translation is a significant part of a total process of bringing the Lord's teaching to bear and discipling the nations. Yeah, it's like Jesus and Paul validate the whole idea of translation in a way that, for example, Islamic faith does not because they regard the Quran in Arabic as the only real Quran. And um, as I've looked into Islamic studies over time, this is not, you know, there is no one monolithic opinion, but it is very common to believe that translations don't really count. Whereas we would say, would we not, that as the King James translator said that the very meanest translation of the word of God in English containeth, nay, is the word of God. Do you agree with the King James translators there? Yes, I do. So you have worked on an heir to the King James version. I would say a very self-conscious heir, and that is the English Standard Version, which is what my church happens to use. And I have numerous copies of the ESV sitting on a shelf at home. I use them in my family along with others. I want to know, what was your personal involvement with the ESV? Primarily two things. <clears throat> I was asked at a very early point to help draw up guidelines for the, how we would proceed, what kind of a translation it would be, and what our rules or our rails for doing it would be. And then I participated in the central committee called the Translational Oversight Committee, uh, which was 12 voting members at the time. Uh, now it's 13 voting members, I believe. But uh, they they processed a lot of work that was done by a much larger group of people, Bible specialists in individual books, pastors, uh, just ordinary readers. A lot of people contributed in an indirect way, but the central committee made kind of final decisions up or down as to uh, where we would make changes as over against the tradition, you know, which, you, as you say, goes back to the King James, the Revised Version, the Revised Standard Version. We saw ourselves self-consciously standing in that stream. Why are there so many English Bible translations? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> but I can guess that's partly because if you look at the international scope of the English language, there's a tremendously uh, large audience of potential readers. And when it's that large, then people think about, well, I know there are other translations out there, but they don't do one thing quite as well as I'd like them to do, right? And so somebody else jumps in and does another one. But it's a little embarrassing in, in one way because you do 
uh, we should be concerned about languages for which there is currently no Bible translation. Right. But those tend to be smaller groups. And it's precisely because we've got so many uh, speakers of English worldwide, not simply U.S. and Canada, but places in Africa and English used as a second language. So I think that's increase the interest in having multiple translations in English. I work for a Christian publisher, Lexham Press, and we are working on a project hitherto not named and a little secret. And here I'm letting a little bit of the cat's fur out of the bag. Um, We're working on a Bible translation project that's very particular. We're aiming at a particular kind of Bible study, and I won't say more, but it has raised this question for me that I've seen raised particularly by the my King James only brothers, but also by other evangelical Christians, they've said, well, it looks to them like the only reason there are so many publishers putting out Bibles is that there is money to be made. So I asked you privately one time, Dr. Poitras, as I was working on some writing projects, trying to explain to people how it actually works. Did you get independently wealthy through your work on the English Standard Version? No. uh, I wonder about, I think people are right to ask the question, uh, what's the role of money? Uh, Because it's easy for people to be too devoted to money, and Jesus warns against it. Uh, But I think on the practical level, translations won't be done unless there's enough money to support a process that can produce a translation and, you know, uh, lead to uh, the publication process. So there's a certain minimum that you just have to think about in practical terms. But I I think it's that doesn't mean that everybody is motivated by money. Right. In particular, you look at people like you, like Doug Moo, Craig Blomberg, like um, others who are involved with the ESV, the CSB, the major evangelical translations, and they're the ones who are writing the books that we use to study scripture. And you just sense, you know, they're they're in this because they actually care about the word of God, not because they want to make money. And let me let me bounce a thought off of you here. In a way, I don't have any access to the motivations of other publishers out there. I guess I know my own publisher's motivations in our projects. Um, and I feel wary of saying about some fellow Christians, you know, they're only in it for the money. And so I also look practically at these translations and I say to myself, well, it ends up that I get a lot of good use out of the variety of English translations. Comparing them against one another helps me notice textual and translation issues that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. How do you feel about that line of reasoning? Well, it is a benefit. Uh, I, uh, If I may comment a little bit, I think it's right that uh, in Christian love, we should believe the best if we, you know, unless we have particular evidence to challenge somebody's motives. So I agree with that. And I also agree that having a, a, a many translations can alert the ordinary Bible reader to the fact that there are tiny variations that uh, signify the fact that you are dealing with a second language and that things have to be th- thought about as to how to express the same meaning in a second language. And, you know, the person who's just reading one translation in English, it can seem as if, well, there isn't any problem, you know, there isn't uh, any challenge there. So it can be a bit of an education. But I don't 
recommend that people look at 26 or 50 translations. You know, it gets kind of boring after that. But just to have the difference between having one and having two is useful in reminding you we are dealing with something where people are trying to re-express the same meaning, of course, as in the original, but it may come out slightly different in wording from one translation to the next. Now, there's a common graph that is used all over the place in explaining the existence and nature of uh, English Bible translations. It goes from left to right, from the more formal, or sometimes they're called literal translations, to the right the more interpretive or dynamic translations, all the way out to the far right, as it were, into the paraphrastic translations like the message. So I'm going to bounce one more thought off of you. And this is just a really personal question to talking to a more mature scholar um, about my own personal practice. But would you would you agree with me if I said this this spectrum um, indicates different kinds of usefulness? Okay, there are times when, and for me, preaching is one of them. When I really want to stick with a formal translation, there are times when I'm a little puzzled by something and I need the help of an interpretive translation. And there are times when I actually pull out the message because um, I have some sort of devotional or other purpose. I just kind of want to be shocked out of my Bible reading rut to look at the Bible from a different angle, you know, almost like just a first level commentary. Once again, I'll just ask, how does that make you feel? What, what do you think of, about that line of reasoning? Well, I think there's a good deal of wisdom in what you say there. If I may comment on this spectrum, uh, I'm glad that you stress that it is a spectrum because some of the literature talks as if there are two kinds. There's a formal equivalent translation and there's a functional or meaning equivalent translation, two kinds, but actually it is a spectrum. The, the other thing I'd observe is that it's a tendency that won't be manifested in every single verse. There are times when multiple translations will translate virtually identically because the verse is easy to translate, but not every verse is equally easy. <laughs> and it's when they're not easy that you get these differences uh, because some people are stressing the ease and the clarity of communication. That's what's called the functional side. And other people are stressing the fullness of meaning of the original. That's the formal equivalent. The other thing I'd observe, well, two other things. One is that really there's another dimension that people don't talk about that cuts across the area of are you doing with a linguistic equivalence or are you dealing with a cultural equivalence? So there are some uh, renderings like the message that will bring in modern elements of modern culture to try to apply the message of the Bible in our time. But that's moving into an area of cultural understanding. For instance, uh, the end of 1 Corinthians 16, I believe it is, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that's the, that's the meaning of the original. Uh, but uh, Philip's translation uh, renders it a hearty handshake all around. In other words, he, he's, he's trying to think of a cultural equivalent. Uh, in many circles of modern America, we don't kiss one another on the cheek in a greeting among Christians. So 
Phillips is trying to think of something. Well, what's the cultural equivalent? The trouble is with culture, there often is no real thorough equivalent. So I don't think in general that that's a good idea. There, if, if there's somebody who wants to do it just to make you think, as you put it with the message, for instance, and make you think out of the box, then uh, we understand that, but it's not what you want for what I would call an ecclesiastical translation. That is, it's a core translation that you're reading from, studying from, uh, reading from uh, the pulpit in a church service, using in liturgy, using in uh, more intense Bible studies. You, for that core translation, you want to have something that indicates the original culture that educates people about that. Yeah, they did greet one another with a holy kiss. We should think about that rather than having it washed out yeah. by a translation that's trying to uh, pretend, as it were, that this was all done in modern America. It wasn't. It was done long ago. The, uh, the other thing, there's even one more thing. I don't like the labels, formal equivalents or functional equivalents, because everybody uh, believes that you have to translate meaning all all across the spectrum. So it's more how free do you feel to transform the structures, both of repeated words and of grammar. And the more free you feel, the more to one side of the spectrum you are. Let me press you a little bit on one point because I'm trying to understand as I work on a project, you said that um, instead of using words like formal or literal, you used a word like structure. How much do you reflect the structure? Isn't that the same as saying reflecting the form? What I'm getting at is what is the fundamental distinction between something like the ESV and something like the NIV? ESV is tended to be viewed as more formal, literal, and the NIV tends to be viewed as more interpretive. And again, many verses are precisely the same, but in those places where there are differences, that's generalizably true. What is the fundamental difference between uh, translations like those two? Yeah, well, the trouble with the word form is that it tends to contrast with meaning, right? So you talk about the form of a poem and its meaning. And uh, my complaint is then that the label formal equivalence is prejudicial. It's suggesting that you're more interested in the form than you are in the meaning. And that's not true. It's not true of any translation that I know of throughout the history of the world. You know, they're all interested, meaning everybody knows that it's the meaning of the original that has to be communicated in another language. The issue then is whether you best do that rendering of meaning by transforming structures or by leaving them as much as feasible the same. Everybody makes changes. The King James changes word order, changes small uh, things about uh, the rendering of the uh, Hebrew or Greek. Uh, the, uh, for instance, the the uh, Greek phrase of the gospel of Christ, for instance, would typically have two definite articles in Greek. We only have one in English, but that's it's because we don't say the gospel of the Christ. It would sound really stilted. So there's things like that. There are natural changes to make the thing grammatical in the target language, so to speak. But the question is, if you do radical 
changes in structure, that what happens is two things. Well, it's structure and it's vocabulary as well. Uh, because the philosophy of some of the newer translations and paraphrases has been, we're just going to go for meaning. But that was accompanied by what I think is a very uh, a narrow and almost deficient theory of meaning, meaning that came in with the development of 20th century structural linguistics, the idea that meaning was basically located at a sentence level and partly at a clause level. Trouble is, and that didn't do justice either to paragraphs or to the, the network of uh, cross-references that develop in a, a work as large as the Bible, and particularly because it's written over centuries and centuries, the way in which the New Testament builds on the Old Testament. There are many quotations from the Old Testament. There are many allusions that use common vocabulary. If you change the vocabulary around, you, you uh, wash out a lot of those cross-relationships. There's even an article by Jack Collins using 1 John as a test case, because 1 John is a th very thematic book about light and darkness, love and hate, and abiding. There's this language of abiding in the truth and abiding in the light. And, uh, and the translations that don't try to preserve the same word in the target language end up washing out those cross connections. The ESV at the very beginning almost we determined we were going to consistently translate two key words, one in Hebrew and one in Greek, with the English word offspring. Rather than seed. Yeah, the seed was the old term for it. But the reason is that the theme of the seed or offspring is a tremendously significant theological theme encompassing, you know, it goes all the way from Adam through the line of Seth and Abraham and the line of David, right, and David's descendants, and the offspring ultimately comes to a climax with Jesus Christ, who is the definitive offspring of Abraham. How do you capture that if you're ranging all over the map with uh, several different words for descendants and and uh, progeny and right? If you're if you just feel free to translate each sentence by itself in terms of what is most natural in English, you're going to wash that out. So I think. There were some of the philosophies of translation have been deficient in their recognition of the way in which there are these cross links that can't be well preserved if you just go sentence by sentence. They give me stuff to advertise on this show. They put it in my hands and say, tell people about this. Well, today I closed my eyes, stuck out my hands, and into them they put my own baby. How do you advertise your baby? Authorized, the use and misuse of the King James Bible is my baby. A book into which I poured all the love and creativity and linguistic Bible nerdiness that I could amass. I have written a lot about Bible translation on the Logos blog and elsewhere, in Bible Study Magazine, for example, but this book is the center of all my work on the topic. And here's the neatest thing to me. I started writing some about the King James Version, thinking that I would reach a niche audience, but I discovered instead that there are lots of people who are interested in English Bible translation. Lots of people who like to nerd out about the ways English has changed in the last 400 years. 
people who like to think about what we lose as the King James Version ceases to be the English-speaking church's common standard, uh, and people who love to nerd out about some of the other key ideas in my book. The key idea in my book is something that others have seen before, it's not new, but that no one has written a book about that I know of. That key idea is false friends. Everybody knows there are dead words in the King James Version. Words we know we don't know, like besom, chambering, and emerald. My iPad won't let me type emerald. It insists on correcting me because the word is simply no longer present in English. But what people don't realize is how many false friends exist in the King James Version. Words we don't know we don't know. Words we think we know, so we pass right over them in our reading. I don't want the 55% of Bible readers in the US who still read the King James Version to miss out on things the Bible is saying. I don't think it's the King James translator's fault that this is happening now. I don't think it's reader's fault either. And it's certainly not my fault, so don't blame it on me. It's the fault of language change. English has evolved a fair bit in the last several centuries since Tyndall and the King James translators produced what has come to us as the standard. But you have to either be an extreme nerd to know how these changes have affected our reading of the King James, or you have to pick up my book, Authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Or you have to watch the movie. I made a 45-minute documentary, also called Authorized, and it's available to watch freely with a 14-day trial to faithlifetv.com. I had unbelievable fun doing this. I guarantee you will love it if you like this sort of thing, you know documentaries about Bible translations featuring obscure humor only Bible nerds will get. Check out authorizedbook.com to see the book and see the movie. An audio version of the book is now also available. Partial satisfaction guaranteed. Authorizedbook.com. Can I give you one example of a misunderstanding that was a little humorous presented to me recently by a pastor's wife who grew up reading exclusively the King James Version, like I did actually. It's Matthew 6, 28, where Jesus says, "'Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin.'" And she told me she understood what they toil not means. Um, but she always envisioned neither do they spin, meaning a bunch of flowers in a lake or, or pond just spinning and dancing on the surface of the water, spinning. She said she even knew what a spinning wheel was, but it just didn't really occur to her right. until she was an adult and read the New Living Translation that says they don't work or make their clothing. And let me give you one more data point here. I would put that on the more interpretive side because the word clothing, you know, isn't in the text. How about something like the CSB that says they don't labor or spin thread? You know, in a sense, they add this word thread. But if that's what she'd grown up on, she would have understood. Um, and same with the NLT, whereas through no fault of the King James, but because of that cultural distance, when they just said, neither do they spin, she didn't understand until adulthood. Talk to me about, as a translator, how you weigh the different values when you come to translate a verse like this, a phrase like that. Yes. If, if it's not going to be understood, then you absolutely have to find an alternative. But the ESV policy they defined it as essentially literal, meaning we're going to not alter the structure unless we have to. Whereas I think some of the other translations further over on the spectrum, they say willy-nilly, we're just going to alter it to our heart's content to 
every time produce something that's easy and easy to understand in English. So, but I think it is a spectrum in terms of uh, the the king. There's a the verse, and I can't tell you where it is. Uh, that that where in the Psalms it says that in my kidneys I rejoice. Well, that that doesn't work in English because we don't associate kidneys with the inner emotional states of what we would say in our heart or in our inner being, we rejoice. So that's something where it absolutely doesn't work and where you have to find something else. And the ESV says, in, in, the, in my inner being, I rejoice, and then has a footnote, Hebrew kidneys. So it tells you what's going on, but it recognizes that kidneys in the, in the Hebrew culture were the seat of emotion. We think the heart is a seat of emotion, but of course, nobody is saying we're we're building a biological theory. It's a matter of standard metaphorical usage, right? So that's the kind of thing where if something is too hard to understand or it's going to be misunderstood, then you find a way to do it. But that's different from saying we're going to make something as easy as possible. Let me give you an example of that. In um, in First Kings uh, chapter two, it talks about the death of David, um, and it's verse eleven, I believe. Yes. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Well, the Good News Bible thought that that was too hard a metaphor, right? Because that's not the way we would say it. So the Good News Bible renders it. Let me find the same verse. David died and was buried in David's city. Blah. It's just totally colorless. It's easy, right? Absolutely easy to process. Whereas David slept with his fathers, you have to have a little bit of context to see, oh, it's the context of his death. What's what's lost, though, when you say David died? Well, it's the connection with his ancestors. Then David slept with his fathers. It's a whole line, you see, and it's related to this thing of the offspring, right? That he's in the line of the kings and he's in the line of the tribe of Judah. So, the also the language of slept suggests, well, maybe he could wake up. In other words, a resurrection. Now, it isn't directly said, but there's a parallel verse in Psalm 13 where the psalmist prays to be rescued lest he sleep the sleep of death. So it's a metaphor there where you're going to lose the suggestion of the possibility of the resurrection if you just say he died. So there's, there's, weight in these kinds of things. And if you just try to make everything as simple and as transparent as possible, you're going to lose out. Uh, Just before we started talking together, I looked up Psalm 2 to compare the ESV and the NIV. Now, the NIV is not as far over as the Good News Bible in terms of, of, of changing a metaphorical language, but the poetry of the Old Testament is a real challenge for the people who are transforming stuff because they're going to be tempted to introduce new figures of speech instead of the old ones. Psalm 2, verse 1, ESV, why do the nations rage? 
NIV, why do the nations conspire? That's not the same meaning. Conspire is much more uh, transparent as to what it is that they're raging about, that they're resisting the Lord. But the Hebrew is closer to be a tumult. It's a rage. It's not the meaning there. It is not specifically conspire. The NIV is really altering the thing for the sake of ease of reading. Then the next verse, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. That's ESV, NIV. The kings of the earth rise up. There's no idea of rising up. There's no metaphor or picture of rising up in the original Hebrew. They've done that instead of the kings of the earth set themselves, which is more difficult, which is actually what the Hebrew is producing themselves. It's setting, setting yourself standing, in effect, setting yourself in place in order for battle, but it's not rising up. That's not the metaphor. And then they say the rulers band together where the ESV has, the rulers take counsel together. Well, the Hebrew is specifically the idea of plotting together. It's not just banding together as a mob, but it's it's a verbal exchange that is suggested in the language. You can go on through the psalm time after time, there are these subtle little changes, which I'm sure the NIV translators thought were motivated by, we've got to change the thing around a little bit to make it more understandable, to make it easier to grasp. Uh, Psalm 2-3, let us burst their bonds apart. NIV, let us break their chains. Well, I looked it up in Hebrew. It's bonds. It's not chains. There's no suggestion that it's something made out of iron or out of metal. So where does that come from? Well, it's easier for the modern reader, I would guess. I don't know what the translators were thinking of when they did this, of course, but I could understand a reason that says chains are the kind of, of captivity. It's a very clear form of captivity, because whereas bonds is too general to convey that without some further reflection. One of the things that's going on here is that the ESV was done, as I said, as an ecclesiastical translation. We were saying, this is for the church. There are teachers in the church. There are people to help you understand what things mean when the language is a little more difficult. And I wonder whether some of the other translations, the idea is, well, you're just going to read it by yourself. You've got nobody to discuss it with and nobody to, to uh, help you understand. The next line, cast away their cords from us. The Hebrew word is specifically normally for ropes or that kind of thing. NIV has throw off their shackles. Again, suggesting something made out of metal. Uh, so they've changed this only subtly, right? And they could say, well, the overall impact is going to be the same, namely to make the point that these rebellious nations are rebelling against the Lord. Okay, I grant that. But where's the details of the meaning, right? They've been changed around. And the NIV is far from being the most violent here. They're, the translations that are more paraphrastic will add and delete nuances all over the place. And that's the problem you get into when you're trying to say, well, let's convey the whole thought of the whole sentence without paying attention to the details. So this is an issue 
that I've been familiar with since I was a kid. Actually, my father used to work for Word of Life Ministries, and I I remember him writing when I was in elementary school an article that canvassed this very debate. And it has puzzled me in a way to this day, you know, what should my personal practice be given that, well, my, my impulses are toward the inspiration of every word and therefore the reflection of every word in as many forms as feasible. That was your word, and I agree with it, um, in my translations. And yet, repeatedly, I have found that when I did check more interpretive translations, such as the NIV and now others that have come out since I've uh, gotten to adulthood, they have helped me understand little things that I didn't see before. And I've been maybe a little bit like Solomon here, like, give me the baby and we'll cut it in half and give it to each side. Uh, yeah. um, where I've said, okay, you know, it, it maybe it used to be that we all could only afford one Bible. Um, but nowadays we all have an average of 38 you know, in our homes and 4,000 on our smartphones. And, you know, that's, you mentioned it's, it's too many. We can't deal with them all, but even just the five that are pretty well standard in evangelical circles that get used just around everywhere. If I just kind of keep my eye on those easily through Logos Bible software or the good websites out there that, um, compare all these, I have found that they help me. Uh, and I've I've actually gotten, um, dare I say, a little bit impatient with the debate. And that sounds dismissive of what you just said, and I don't mean that at all. I'm following everything that you just said, and I'm, I was actually looking at it in the text, and I agree with you. But then I also think about the people to whom I minister, and I used to minister to functionally illiterate people. And I just totally get the other impulse, too. We want to make the meaning as accessible as possible. So... I've tended to go for a both-and approach that still makes the formal translations sort of the starting point. And the more uh, uh, the more my congregation is full of people or the, my circle that I'm influencing in church is full of people who have some education, at least a high school level, then the more likely I am to move them over toward a formal translation. Um, the, the more they get toward the functionally illiterate, the more I'm going to lean toward something that's easier to understand. I feel like I keep telling you what I think and then saying, you tell me what you think about what I think, but it's because I do respect you and I'm still processing these issues, even though now I'm in print and kind of stuck with some of my views publicly. And that's one of them. I'd still like to know, how does that sound to you? Yeah, I basically agree with you. I've had experience with youngsters, um, uh, delinquent children's home, and doing an, basically an evangelistic Bible study there. And they, they were, it was difficult for them to read the Good News Bible, even though that's a fairly low level of English, because of, you know, their difficult backgrounds. Uh, so I wouldn't use the ESV or another one of the um, more eloquent <laughs> translations in a, the context of an evangelistic Bible study, because you're dealing with people, and particularly with this, you know, young people whose facility with English was very much subpar. Uh, we want them to get the message. And part of the point is that these paraphrastic versions uh, they still have the message of salvation, and people can get saved. So I'm all in favor of that. 
But I'm also in favor of what you say and that people, there's a movement where people should graduate from that kind of thing to an integrated life in the church community where they are, as it were, invited upward to um, a deeper knowledge of Scripture rather than staying with something that is very accessible and very readable, but that is losing nuances. My wife was converted during the Jesus movement in the 60s, and she got herself a Good News Bible with these little line drawings and everything. And she was marking it up and reading it. And uh, then finally, somebody noticed and said, oh, that's a baby Bible. Get yourself a real Bible. And uh, the ASV didn't exist, of course, back then. So she got herself an NASV, and she's that's been her main Bible <laughs> ever since. But I think that narrative shows that there's room for something like the Bible in basic English. Many people don't realize that, that there is a, a Bible that has that title. It was done years and years ago, and its title says it all, the Bible in basic English. Well, you're going to get something that is simplified, but what if you're dealing with children? What if you're dealing with people, as you describe it, or not very literate, stumble over even simple English? Uh, foreigners who are learning English as a second language. Well, you want something to be available there, but you don't want to overestimate what you're getting. And the the title, the Bible in basic English, is an honest title. Yeah, the new international readers version is the one that I went toward when I was in ministry like that. And the readers word indicates the same thing. You know, we're we're going for people who are learning to read. And it was a very literal godsend in my experience. I went from having to explain the English when I would preach to this small group of, you know, unchurched people to being able to explain the Bible and being able to say, can you read this out loud and let's talk about it? And I could just tell they're able to read it without stumbling and they're able to answer questions about it right afterward. I was very grateful for that in that circumstance. Yes. Yeah. And I, I agree. Yeah. But I think the pressure is on publishers to be over optimistic about what their particular translation can do and to claim that it can do everything. They're over optimistic. I don't deny this. They may seem sincere, but in fact, no translation can do everything that we want to do in terms of evangelism and in terms of reaching people who are, as you described, unchurched. And I think there's room for evangelistic tracts that radically restate, you know, they may not even quote directly from the Bible, but they just tell you the story of salvation, right? Of course, we can use those, but we don't claim of those tracts that they're more than they actually are. We want people, okay, if you come to know Christ, then get integrated into a Christian community where there is teaching and where you can grow into a deeper appreciation of the message of the Bible. The tendency of modern American life is largely to homogenize, to say everybody can Let's pull people down to the low level rather than (laughs) encourage them and challenge them to go up to a higher level of understanding. 
Yeah, trying to erase any political connections of these words, I nonetheless thought about them often as I ministered in low-income communities, the the soft bigotry of low expectations. I did want to be God's tool to raise people as high as possible in their knowledge of God's Word. You know, we have spent a lot of time talking about uh, really kind of one issue when it comes to Bible translation. It's the central one that many people face very practically when they walk into a bookstore and try to choose something. But one answer that we're both circling around um, to that problem is to to encourage people not to think that there is one translation to rule them all that should be able to do everything you need a Bible translation to do. It is okay to say, here's a translation that's useful for this circumstance. Here's one that's more useful for this circumstance. And I, I appreciate your perspective on that. I found I have found your writings on linguistics and Bible interpretation to be very helpful. Everyone listening has got to go read um, Words and Precision, a chapter in your book, Symphonic Theology, which is available freely on your website. You have thought a great deal about how to make the Bible understandable, as many of the individual words as possible to the church. And for that, I am very grateful. I want to land this plane, okay, this conversation about Bible translation that is supposed to be related to biblical literacy by asking a question about biblical literacy. How does someone have to know that they're reading a translation rather than reading the originals in order to be biblically literate? No. I I like it when people just read and read and read their English Bibles. I think that is the number one thing that they ought to be doing to become biblically literate. Just read, you know. And my wife, shortly after she was converted, uh, she asked R.C. Sproul what to do to grow as a Christian, and he said, "Read the Bible through the whole Bible once a year." She's been doing it ever since. I think that's good advice. You know, if you if you have, as it were, the time and motivation to do it, uh, you know, some people are very pressed for time. But I, I believe in reading the Bible in English, and I think uh, the average Christian shouldn't worry about the fact that it's a translation because the translations, the the core translations in English, are very very good. They're they're they are telling you what is the meaning of the original. One of the things I am most grateful for in my upbringing, I mean, could I say the most grateful for, is that emphasis on what I've sometimes called the evangelical sacrament, daily Bible reading. I was told over and over and over again, and I grew up in a King James-only atmosphere. I was told to read my Bible. And my Christian school teachers and my pastor, they lived that out themselves, and they did model for me um, a dedication to that. And I have taken it as a baseline and over all these years, yes, I've just got to know the Bible for myself. And after a conversation like this, I find myself once again grateful to the Lord for this embarrassment of riches that we have in English Bible translation. If you are having trouble understanding something, there are so many tools, starting with translations you can go to. And then there's so many beautiful Bibles you can pick up and become an expert in. Just know and read your Bible. Dr. Poitras, thank you so much for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast and sharing your gifts with the church once again. Oh, you're welcome. and my privilege. got some gentlemen who know Bible translation and Greek and Hebrew and linguistics and all that nerdy stuff and have done a great deal of work for the church in these areas. 
I've got Doug Mangum, a fellow editor, academic editor at Lexham Press. And Doug, tell us briefly, what kind of work have you done in this area? Mm. In terms of English Bible translation, uh, working on the plans for the project with the well, with the working on the Lexham English Bible primarily. Um, my research has been in Bible translation, more looking at ancient versions like Septuagint and uh, Targums, Shittim. And um, now my interest in Bible translation, though, goes way back to being that one kid who gets his first Bible and then reads the translator's preface all the way through and kind of thinks about well, what does this all mean that they this differently and then get a different Bible and like, whoa, they have a different approach to translation. What is that all about? So I've been kind of informally interested in English Bible translations, why they were different for a long time. And so that just eventually led me to the NIDA School of uh, Translation Studies a few years ago, where I learned about the intersection of Bible translation and linguistics and translation studies as a discipline of you know, just looking at translation theory um, more broadly. So, And then that led right into my dissertation research. Which was on? So on the idioms and kind of figures of speech in biblical Hebrew and how those got translated in the ancient Bible translations. And if that sounds impossibly academic to some listeners, and I don't think it will because they just sat through a big discussion with Vern Poitras, I think that that is very practical. That's a very practical topic of study because the, the how we translate idioms mm-hmm. um, today is both fought over and interesting and a valuable discussion. Yes, and it actually factors in a little bit with what he's talked about with the way that imagery and things gets translated. Yeah. Mike Aubrey is my other guest here today. Mike also works for Faith Life, and so we've got him in the studio. And Mike happens to be heading off in undisclosed amounts of time, I don't know, to Wycliffe Bible Translators and has a long-term interest in Bible translation as well. Tell us what kind of work you've done in this space. Um, So I have a... uh bachelor's degree in biblical languages. And then in uh, graduate school, I have been studying translation and linguistics uh, for for the purpose of heading toward uh, the missions field serving in Bible translation with Wycliffe Bible translators. I actually studied uh, linguistics uh, down in Dallas, Texas at the Graduate Institute of Applied Linguistics, which is actually where uh, Vern Poitras himself uh, was when he studied linguistics uh, back when he did it um, a number of decades ago. I just read a book by Robert Alter called The Art of Bible Translation. And if I may summarize the book in one sentence, it goes like this. All translation requires compromise, but I think everybody should compromise exactly the way I do, which is make sure that you get all the literary devices evident in your translation. And Alter is very good at this, okay? He can he can detect the subtleties in biblical Hebrew in a way that, I mean, as a non-specialist myself, but someone who knows some Hebrew, I was very impressed with. However, I found myself a little nonplussed because he would say things like, uh, the practice of translation entails an endless series of compromises, some of them happy, some painful and not quite right, because the translator has been unable to find an adequate English equivalent. 
But he'd also things say things like this, I have tried to do in my English version of the Bible what other translators, by and large, have not seen the need to do because they have had, at best, only a patchy sense of the literary aspects of Hebrew. And what I find is the truth in uh, Vern Poitras' statement. He said, uh, translators uh, will think, okay, well, there, there are other translations out there, but they don't do one thing quite as well as I'd like them to, so let's make a new translation. When you look out at the map of English Bible translation, is there anything missing that still needs to be done? Not sure that, and just to point what you brought up about Alter, it's that there is in literary translation theory a much different approach of the relationship between the translation and the source text. And Alter's approach to Bible translation follows that literary model where it doesn't matter if this novel that was originally written in Italian has such a different life and experience for a reader in English. And so he's kind of trying to recreate something that he's not married to or trying to, I guess, preserve the form or anything of the source text as most Bible translators are much more attentive to the meaning and things of the source text. So I'd say he's more of like a literary paraphrase almost at times. I don't, I haven't looked at his entire translation. I did use some of the Psalms and it was much more of a, well, if I was writing a similar poem in English, this is what I would produce. And so he has a different, I think, approach. I think there's a place for that sort of literariness, but figures of speech, metaphors, metonymy, those sorts of things are sometimes just outright impossible. Right. to translate. And he acknowledges that. Um, you brought up two of the concerns that I had when I wrote a review of this book and trying to get it published. We'll see what happens. And one is that Alter's concerns don't include the church at all. And of course, the ESV and NIV and CSB are going to end up different because they have a different target audience and therefore a different purpose. And then also, um, he's willing to serve literary devices by using obscure English words and phrases in compromising in a direction I don't find useful, like he used the word knaves in one place or welter and waste is how he translates without form and void. Those just aren't common words. Which is, an, that's an interesting point uh, in the context of Portrips's uh, perspective on, on translation and the emphasis of less formal, more functional translations having this tendency to emphasize uh making it easy. Uh, whereas this translation is arguably at a big picture level, less formal and, and more functional, but he's also not interested in being easy at all. Yeah, that, that's, that's a set of compromises that a very specific set that he's chosen. And in my review, I said, okay, great. <laughs> You've added something actually to that um, common left to right spectrum. It's almost like he added a, a Y or no Z axis right. to that. And that's great. But that's that's one set of values that are good, but that's not the only set of values that are good. And so I find myself continually saying there's an embarrassment of riches. Let's use them all. Exactly. And and it's and there's a there's a case being made that translations like the NIV or the NLT, while they might seem like they are making choices for the purpose of being easy. Maybe there's, they have a Z access that we're not necessarily thinking about or that Poitras isn't thinking about, or I'm not thinking about. And um, 
and sort of giving the translation the benefit of the doubt, um, I think has a lot of value. Which is easier to do when you conceive of the translators as fellow Christians and not nameless and faceless people who are just trying to get more of your money. I've known some of the translators now of some of the major English versions, including Vern, and including a guy, Dale Brueggemann, who worked for Faith Life. He did Leviticus for the New Living Translation. It just put a face on this debate. Now, let, let's get into this debate again a little further. Uh, Dr. Poitras and I spent a good time, a good amount of time talking about it, um, and I asked him a question I want to pose to you guys, too. What is the nub of the disagreement that goes on between the I'm just going to use these standard terms, the more formal or literal and the more functional or dynamic translations. What do you see as the essence of the thing they're disagreeing about when they do? Mm -hmm. I think that um, the main thing they disagree on is the uh, refusing to acknowledge the reality that they don't disagree as much as they think. Um, so, for example, I used to kind of grew up more formal equivalent translations were better, literal is better. And yeah, literal equals moral in yeah. a way. And then years ago, I got a NLT, like as a review thing for my blog. And I started looking at it and read the preface and things like, oh, well, they want to be as literal as necessary, but free when they need to. And so I started using it and like, you know what, a lot of times they're exactly the same literal translation or really close to it that I would have used, you know, reading the you know, Hebrew or, or Greek myself. So like, well, I guess they lived up to that. They've translated literally as much as possible, but when it wasn't possible, they felt free to depart from the structure and forms and things as, as Poitras knows. I don't think that they're um, have the same bent. And I think he overemphasizes this of like, they just want to make everything as easy as possible. Well, some of them do, but a lot of times they're just like, you know what, that's, there's a better way to say that in English. Like the example I gave of the pastor's wife who read, uh, they toil not, neither do they spin. Mm. I mean, it's it, spin the thread is a perfect compromise. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, I think one of the challenges here is that, it isn't, in, it isn't entirely clear to me that they know that they're disagreeing with each other about different things. Um, and I think that's, I think it's, it's quite clear that, that Poitras and, and those who share his perspective, um, they have a, a good and valid case for what they're arguing, but that, um, and I, I obviously come from the, the more the other side of the, the continuum in terms of how I view translation. And my general reaction when, when, when I'm listening to uh, those sorts of arguments, and I have good friends who, who hold those positions and, and we, we get along just fine. But my response tends to be, well, yes, that's true. But, but there's this, this other thing going on. And what is that other thing? Well, so for example, uh, it's, a, it's this disagreement about what the disagreement is. Mm -hmm. and, and from the, the more functional perspective, the more uh, meaning-based translation view of things, there's in English translation, you have a tradition of what the form meaning pairings are for these 
forms in English, we accept them as conventionalized, correct justification, propitiation, sanctification. The the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. And the question is, well, if that that's if that's a convention for just sort of the English, um, what happens when we start from scratch and we look at the the English conventions? Are they are they actually accurate to the Greek and Hebrew? In other words, we have a long tradition of the King James Version, which is in many, many, many respects, very good. We're glad to have this tradition. But it also has decided questions for us that if we were somehow able to start fresh today, we probably would decide differently. Exactly. And I thought it was interesting that Poitras went to Psalms 2 when he was making his various comparisons between the ESV and the NIV and and pointing out these various issues where he he views the NIV as making a, a poorer choice for the the rendering of the poetry because if you jump back one chapter to psalm one you have this very interesting uh reference that's it's very strong in the king james tradition where um you have this phrase stand in the way of sinners yeah and natural english today you hear if you hear the ways stand in the way yeah like there's sinners coming everybody stand in the path make sure they can't get past us yeah there it's an adversarial yeah um and that's the natural meaning of the english and that's actually one of my um friends andy warren rothland who's a translation consultant with ubs has an article on psalms and that's his opening example is we translated this literally in kenya i think it was and that doesn't make any sense Mm-hmm. And like you can't translate these sorts of figures of speech literally most of the time. And in my experience, once you get outside of English Bible translation debates, the formal functional di- divide disappears because everybody's right. on the meaning based side because they realize when you're out there actually doing the work of trying to put these words into a new language that is because they're the, the, tr- the great tradition doesn't of exist. translation doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. And so everybody out there needs to read Dave Brun's book, right? You guys agree with me? One Bible, many versions. Yes. He makes that point so yes. well. And I've been able to make this point um, to people who aren't specialists and say, okay, if literal equals moral, whereas I would say literal equals useful, the general idea out there among conservative Christians, such as myself, often is literal equals moral. Well, then you go over to the Lamogai people, which is the people in New Guinea that Dave Run served. And there are forms in the Greek and Hebrew that have become familiar to us in English that you just cannot do in Lamogai. So is it immoral? I mean, should he have to change Lamogai in order to fit Greek and Hebrew better so that they can be literal? Obviously, no. So if it's okay for him to do it in Lamogai, could it be possible for for us to communicate the same meaning with different forms in English? And these are things where in minority languages, it's not even a question of the, the metaphorical languages. It's about like the grammar of the language itself. Yeah, like a a my possessive, which for us, because we speak an Indo-European language that is deeply indebted to Greek, and because we have a culture formed in part by the Bible, um, we can, you know, our word my, 
means basically the same thing that the Greek word my meant. Whereas possession in other languages might have to indicate, it might be required to indicate, is this a physical object that I have on my physical person? Is it uh, some other kind of possession of a non-tangible object? Well, you know, what do you do in those cases? You have to make an interpretive decision. Uh, That can't be immoral. Yeah. Or in the, in the Quechua language in uh, Peru. I've been there. Mm, Very nice. The singing is very interesting. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. They have, they have a distinction for all of their plural, first person plurals for in English, we, and us between we as in Doug and I, but not you, Mark. Takes or a lot, we all three of us together. So exclusive, just mm-hmm. us, but not you, and inclusive, everyone here. So, and many languages have a distinction like this. And when you do a Bible translation in a language like that, Greek doesn't make that distinction. Hebrew doesn't make that distinction. But every single first person plural, you have to make a judgment about what kind of group this is. Is this an inclusive group? In everyone, or is it an exclusive group? And that's not in the text. It's it's an inference that you have to make, and you have to make it every time. And we don't think about those sorts of things. There can be thousands of such decisions that Precisely. each language presents a different set of problems. And if people out there in English Bible translation reading land who aren't translators, you know, that's most people in the church are not called to this. If they can gain just some appreciation for the sheer number of decisions that have to be made in other languages, which we aren't politically invested in. So we don't have an emotional attachment to this or that translation in Sarakabadan or Chadian Arabic or Indonesian, you know, Malay language. Um, If we can look at it, you know, from an outsider's perspective, maybe we can then get a new perspective on English Bible translation. And, and really, one of my biggest concerns is just stop the fighting. Mm-hmm. This is such an emotional debate. And if we pull, if we can try to pull out this idea that literal equals moral, I think that we can lower the temperature of internet fights over which translation is best. I say, use all the good ones. That's maybe my infamous phrase. Okay, now, however, I feel some... Uh, boy, what's the word I want? Affinity. I understand what's going on when somebody such as Paul Minkowski, S.J., who reviewed Alter's translation of the Old Testament that we were just talking about in First Things not too long ago, having on my Kindle. He, oh, should I mention that? Because this is a Faith Life podcast. Well, it's okay. I, can, I subscribe to it on Kindle. Um, he saw in Alter's translation, quote, a revindication of formal equivalence in Bible translation. Alter, this guy said, quote, rescued vast tracts of English biblical narrative, not from obscurity, but from specious and arbitrary lucidity. Is it possible to make the Bible more clear than it ought to be? That's a good question. More clear than it ought to be? Yeah. Is there an oughtness in the clarity level of the Bible? Wow, I that I don't I'm not entirely sure. Come on, highly paid professionals. Can we should we say like, well, what was the reading level of the average uh, Judean in the eighth seventh centuries and what would they have read out of it? Well what's interesting is there's actually inscriptions that we have that one of them from Mitzad Hashavyahu actually looks like it's a letter that was written from a laborer saying like, hey, this guy stole my cloak and he didn't give it back at night like he was supposed to, just similar to like the biblical laws about that sort of thing. But the Hebrew in it is like biblical Hebrew. 
It's like, well, was it a scribe? Like the guy just kind of like said his language and then the scribe wrote this letter for him. Did the guy write his own letter? Like, we don't know those sorts of things, but it seems like because you know, monumental inscriptions in Hebrew and Moabite and things are written in what's essentially biblical Hebrew. Translate. So the language of the common person. Translate that to Greek for us, Mike. We have a different situation in Greek. We have far more Koine Greek available than we do biblical Hebrew, you know, outside the Bible. Well, I mean, first I, I would want to say that that sort of quote uh, has a degree of uh, question begging where there's the assumption of I don't know conspiracy to mm -hmm. a conspiracy to create to add lucidity. excessive lucidity um, but in the context of Greek obviously uh, the Koine Greek language is a language of wider communication it is it's the lingua franca like English is for much of the world it is today functionally uh, emerged to be used for communication across large areas of people who probably spoke other languages as well. Um, and in that context, this sort of easy, the easiness of functional versus the, the, the I guess, worthy challenge, the moral uprightness of, uh, of formal, I don't know. That, that seems a little unfair, so maybe I shouldn't say that either. Um, well, that is the way some people talk. Yeah, necessarily. Um, I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt as well. Um, yes. But there's there's this sense of this easy is bad and this is what they're going for. One of the sort of weird quirks of translation work that I see when I look at formal translations of the New Testament is that formal formal translation is very easy to do in in Mark and John um, and even Paul to some degree. But then when you get to a book like Hebrews, mm -hmm. which has some and of Luke the, and Acts. the hardest Greek in the New Testament, all of the formal translations become more functional. Like, they're not keeping the hardness. They're making it easier because the, the language has become that much more foreign to them. And they're the set of uh, conventional constructions, English constructions, don't work quite as well as they did when they were in First John. Um, so in that context, the um, they're they're still doing the same thing. They're just not realizing it, I guess. Okay, I, I excessive lucidity. I happen um, to know you guys. Oh, go ahead. Because Hebrews should arguably be the more like high styled, more uh, literary English, literary English, and yet it pretty well reads like Paul. In right. English Bible translations. Precisely. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. So I know you guys, I know that we could go on and on and on about Bible translation. We nerd about, we nerd out about this on our own time in the lunchroom sometimes. And I pull Mike aside for coffee every once in a while just to talk linguistic stuff. Which we should do again. We need to do that again. We were just over at a coffee shop, all three of us, the other day talking about a, that top secret Bible translation project, which will hopefully come out to the public in some time. Um, so let me just ask a real practical question for you. Seed or offspring? That's an interesting case because offspring then translates a metaphor. Right. Explicitly and gives you the meaning. But ESV is supposed to be essentially literal. 
So that's a case where I would say like, well, yeah, you've given the meaning, but you took out the imagery, which is what he was complaining about in Psalm 2, is that there's these translations lose the feel, they lose the image, um, they lose the metaphor, something. Well, you just gave an example as kind of your, you decided ahead of time you were going to kill this metaphor. So I love and respect Vern Poitras so much. And here we are, yes, okay, disagreeing with him because I have to agree with you, Doug. But it's sort of a happy inconsistency in my mind because what it what it says is, this is this is Dave Brun's point. Every translation doesn't, li- let's say this, no translation lives up to its press. Everybody says, well, we're the most literal, but they're not literal in every case. He, he found a case where the New Living Translation in Psalm 44, I think, was more literal than the New American Standard Bible. Um, and likewise, the, the you can go the other way. Um, so if nobody lives up to their press, maybe we shouldn't argue so hard <laughs> about <laughs> how important it is to be literal or even to go the other direction. Okay, Mike, seed or offspring? Ooh, I'm going to... I'm. I'm going to say offspring, but I would like to also emphasize, and I think uh, Poitras emphasized this as well, because he he talked about the talk the thread of the consistency of the translation through through the Bible and and the, the importance of that. Um, and one of the things that that uh, Wycliffe Bible translators emphasizes is there's a large or I shouldn't, it's a large set, but it's not that big. There's a set of words that they call, the, they're the sort of theological key words that, that matter for the continuity of the story of Scripture, and that for those ones, um, every translation project goes into a substantial um, amount of effort to decide how they are going to be translated ahead of time uh, so that when they get to those passages where these words matter, um, there it can is be consistent. there is that consistency in the thread of of the theology and the thread of the translation um, for the narrative of of salvation and the gospel um, is continued and is maintained in a way that um, is accurate to the original. So there's that concordance is 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 I think the bigger and more important. Um, value. Just be consistent. Precisely. And offspring is a good choice, and there's a good reason for making that choice. And I was mainly pointing out that he was kind of showing in, his own inconsistency by quibbling over details in Psalm 2 that were really, in my mind, so subtle of a nuance that it wasn't even worth, it wasn't activating a metaphor in the same way that you know, seed, seed offspring does. Was, and minority languages where they have a similar seed metaphor uh, absolutely use their their equivalent to seed. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the thing possible. we didn't talk about with figures of speech or something is that most of the time we are going to translate those either, like even literal translations will make them, um, like they'll tell you the meaning and not preserve the form or something like translations that rarely use kidneys when it's used metaphorically for the heart or the inner being, something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't see that in English translations because it doesn't work not a metaphor anymore in English, if it ever was. And would you say, Doug, that the Septuagint translators faced this very same difficulty of how do we translate idioms and came up with a similar range of solutions to what English Bible translations use? This is what I've observed. They did come up with a similar range, but they often, more often than we would probably like, erred on the side of, I'm going to just translate it literally. 
So it, the equivalent example I use is like saying, like, let the cat out of the bag. You can't translate that literally into another language and preserve any sort of meaning. You have to explain what it means or you find another image that carries the same meaning. So, for example, in Afrikaans, you can't say let the cat out of the bag literally because it gives like it, it, it is. It has no meaning. No, it has. It's actually a metaphor. Or has a different meaning. But it means something to the effect of you bought a lemon. You know, you bought some, made a bad purchase, but in, they have another idiom saying like, let the monkey out of your sleeve, which means essentially let the cat out of the bed, let the secret slip. And so when you're translating, most English translations don't make that effort to try to find an equivalent figure of speech because that's a bridge that's hard to cross. So they just default to like, well, let me explain what it means here. And some translations like the NIV go further saying cultural things like, oh, it was about the you know, whatever hour that's this o'clock. Like they'll translate time references and things like that. They do some transculturating rather than just translating. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that I think is contributes to sort of losing the flavor, but it also makes it more readable and understandable. And I don't think you're significantly losing meaning in the sense that, oh, I, I knew it was the third hour, not that it was, you know, whatever o'clock. So I'm going to go for secret third option C, which is sort of where I think you were leaning, Doug, because you didn't actually vote. And that is <laughs> both. Like, why can't we have a formal translation that goes with seed and a more meaning-based translation that goes with offspring? And even in a Christian community that is relatively young. Like I have many friends who are involved in Bible translation around the world that I pray for. One of them, I just got his prayer letter from Cambodia doing a translation for the Jirai people. And my my suggestion, I, this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a newbie in this area and I actually like to hear more about what Mike would say after we're done because we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, what about purposefully going into a culture and saying, we're going to start with a formal translation and then we're going to get later, we're going to plan to have a meaning-based one and we're going to teach people from the beginning how to use both. They, By looking at multiple translations, having different angles on the text, you actually come out with an overall better and uh, better understanding and a more rich perspective. That is certainly what has happened to, to me in English Bible translation. And it is so painful for me to have to end this discussion because I find it so fascinating and useful. The thing I would like people to take away from this, if they are newbies when it comes to Bible translation, is that there are so many complexities. There is a set of 10 million choices when you make a Bible translation. It's pretty meaningless to say the NIV is better than the ESV or vice versa, because you're saying 10 million choices are better than 10 million other choices. No, it's got to be verse by verse, word by word, and audience by audience. And in the end, I just throw up my hands and say, hey, I get usefulness out of all of the good ones. So let me just use them and not worry too much about the big fight that goes on. Doug, thank you. Mike, thank you for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Support for the Bible Study Magazine podcast comes from Logos Bible Software. Start a better, deeper Bible study experience with Logos 8 Fundamentals. Explore scripture more thoroughly than you ever imagined with Factbook, an encyclopedia of biblical places, people, and events. Workflows that walk you step-by-step -step through your Bible study. Notes and highlights, powerful and integrated note-taking capabilities for insights, ideas, and questions available in your Logos digital library, and much more. Learn more about Logos 8 Fundamentals and how it will transform your Bible study at logos.com fundamentals.
Doug and Mike and I could talk for a lot longer about this topic, and we have done so on our own time many times. After we turned off the recording, Mike made a really useful comment relevant to my discussion with Vern Poitras, one I think I should tell you about. He pointed out a lot of the money that comes in for the NIV and NASB and NLT, for example, goes right back into Bible translation projects around the world. The key people who publish and translate our major evangelical English Bibles are committed to getting God's word out to the nations. And so are we at Faith Life, where our mission is to use technology to equip the church to grow in the light of the Bible. I think that that light is magnified by the use of multiple good English Bible translations. I think you will find the same if you will go to the trouble, which is a lot less trouble now that we have Bible software like Logos, to check multiple translations. This is the last episode of the first season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Producer Kaylee Joyce, who is off to study in seminary next year, audio techs Brandon Van Beek and Jack Underwood, and host yours truly, Mark Ward, all hope that your biblical literacy has increased or that your ability to help others achieve biblical literacy has increased, maybe both. We've been trying to cover some of the basics. We've got another season, however, coming up in which we'll talk about how to apply the Bible to your life. There really is a lot of richness there. How do we take an inspired text that is, in a sense, written by God and humans, humans who lived a long time ago in different cultures, how do we take that teaching, make it authoritative, and use it faithfully in our daily lives? Look out for the second season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, subscribe now and you won't have to remember. Thanks for joining us for this first season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast.